You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The saint's robes are the green of army fatigues, covering her head in the Orthodox tradition. Her halo is blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And rather than holding her hands in prayer, she's carrying an anti-tank missile. Her name is St. Javelin, after the weapon in her arms. The image has become a viral symbol of Ukrainian resistance, adorning T-shirts and stickers as the so-called protector of Ukraine. The FGM-148 Javelins she's named for are US-made, part of the arsenal of military aid sent across the Atlantic to help defend against the Russian invasion. But Ukraine wants more support. How far will America go? I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is the war in Ukraine a turning point for U.S. foreign policy. President Biden is in Europe, meeting with allies as the conflict in Ukraine reaches the one-month mark. His administration has supported the fight against Russia with sanctions and military aid, but the president made it clear from the start that he had strict limits. As the conflict drags on, might he step up America's response? With me to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard and John Fasman. Charlotte, how are things in New York? We're not across the table from each other this week, so you're not going to have to put up with my nodding um, and smiling when you say clever things. I'm, I'm safely um, here, the other side of the Atlantic, via video link. Yes, thank goodness. I am well. I was sorry to hear of Madeleine Albright and also reminded of her legacy. She was someone who thought America was indispensable to global peace. She supported American military action in Iraq, uh, in, in Serbia in the late 90s. She regretted that America didn't stop the Rwandan genocide. So if you think about the long debate about the scope of American intervention, she coined the term assertive multilateralism. And so it's interesting to think about that legacy and how it plays out right now as Biden considers different scale of intervention in Ukraine. Yes, that's right. I think everyone is sorry to see her go. But what a remarkable life she had. John, America's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine seems like a case study of assertive multilateralism so far. It does. It seems like a revival of that liberal interventionist tradition that she so championed and that I think took a real blow because of America's misadventure in Iraq. But it does feel like there's a version of that that is sort of not 
what it was before, it does feel like that tradition is being updated now and is vibrant in a way that it hasn't been for quite some time. Yes, I think that's right. We're recording this as Joe Biden is meeting with allies in Europe, and we're expecting some more announcements later. For the latest on that, please go to our website or listen to The Intelligence, our daily podcast. Here, we're all about looking at the big picture, and we're going to talk about America's strategy in responding to this conflict and what it tells us about US foreign policy now. It's our diplomatic editor, Anton Lagardia's job to think about that. And he says that America will soon run out of easy ways to respond to the war in Ukraine. The response has come in different phases. We had an initial round of sanctions when Russia first announced that it was recognizing the independence of the breakaway regions of Ukraine uh, on the eve of war, then more sanctions when the invasion began, and then the big package a few days later when they uh, decided to freeze the reserves of, of the Russian state, among other things. The invasion has gone on, the fighting has continued, the Ukrainians have impressed us with their valor and their bravery, uh, the Russians have appalled people in terms of their behavior and the pulverizing of cities. So there is this cry for people to do more. But to do more means to do more dangerous things. So you've seen, for example, that uh, the West has provided anti-tank weapons to the Ukrainians. Then they started providing anti-aircraft weapons. Now there's talk of providing uh, much longer range anti-aircraft missiles and the Ukrainians are saying, give us some planes, which the Poles seemed ready to do, but which Americans belatedly said, no, we think that's escalatory. As the days and weeks go on, then people will start to reach for some of those solutions, uh, some of those responses that seemed unthinkable a few days or weeks ago. And the problem is that nobody really knows how far you can go in fighting what is essentially a proxy war against a nuclear power. And Anton, Joe Biden's meeting with European allies at the moment, the US and Europe seem closer than they have been for a long time in foreign relations and, and militarily as well. Meanwhile, Russia and China seem to be getting closer. This all feels a bit like the early Cold War, you know, the, the 50s and the 60s before Nixon went to China and the Chinese-Soviet alliance unwound somewhat. Is that a useful analogy to think back to those decades? How is this different from that? It is and it isn't. We are back in the world of great power rivalry. We're back in the world of containing a great power that has nuclear weapons. Um, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, there was this alliance of Eurasian communist powers. Now it's uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping saying that their friendship has no limits. It rhymes with, uh, with that period. The difference, of course, is that uh, Russia is not Soviet uh, the Soviet Union. It doesn't have a global ideology as attractive. It's a much diminished foe. And China is a much greater foe. So to the extent that there is a, a leader of this alliance, it's China rather than Russia. So Russia is the acute threat. China is the what the Americans like to call the pacing threat. Or as a diplomat put it to me, uh, Russia is a tsunami and China is climate change. Anton, I know it's really hard to make these sorts of judgments while a war is going on, but does this feel to you like a turning point in American foreign policy? Yes, it does. The post-Cold War era, which is already a mouthful, has, has ended, in a sense. Um, the idea that 
you know, states respected the boundaries that existed at the end of the war and America was dominant. So that that has ended. What we'll call the post, post-Cold War era, we don't know yet. We don't have a name for it, uh, but we know something big has happened. Uh, I think that for the United States, it means two things. First of all, the world matters a lot more. This president came into office wanting to focus on uh, nation building at home and, in fact, saw the revival of America at home as the main tool for challenging China. To the extent that it had a foreign policy, it was about China. Now it has to manage a crisis in Europe. And this is not where it wanted to be. It wanted to do less in Europe, not more. That said, um, it sees that um, there is a possibility of dealing a defeat to Russia and therefore burdening China with it as well. So you see a lot of work by the administration trying to taint China with the same brush as Russia, saying, do not help them, otherwise you too will be isolated. And also the thing to look at is the budget request, which is expected next week. That will tell you ultimately where his priorities lie. If he goes for a big increase in the defense budget, as a lot of people are urging him to do, that will mean either shrinking his ambitions on the domestic front or raising taxes or increasing debt. None of those are very popular. So I think the shape of the defense budget will tell you a lot about how he sees the threats in the world. Charlotte, this war is one month old and the Russian army is shelling civilians in Mariupol and elsewhere. What has the US government done in the first phase of this conflict? There's a big question now about what next, um, given the war crimes that the Russian army is committing and Vladimir Putin is committing. But what's been done so far and, and what do you make of it? Well, President Biden has to deal with this question, which is a tricky one which is how do you participate in a war without participating in a war? And the answer to that to date has been to have a whole raft of sanctions that are really aggressive, including targeting Russia's banking sector, uh, trying to really isolate Russia from the global economy, imposing a range of, of limits on what Russia can export, including Russian energy to America, which is uh, just a fraction of about 8% of America's oil imports are Russia, but it's nonetheless an important measure. And I think that what you've seen in addition to that is a whole raft of military aid. So it's worth noting that this is not entirely new, that America has been providing aid to Ukraine for decades now, but it's been an enormous escalation since the invasion. In February 26, Biden approved $350 million in military aid for Ukraine On March 11th, the president signed off on an emergency spending package that includes $13.6 billion in aid for Ukraine. About half of that is for military support, weapons transfers, more American troops in Europe. And then another enormous chunk is to provide humanitarian relief, which is, of course, hugely important. But even after, to Anton's point, even after that big approval of nearly $14 billion in aid for Ukraine on March 12th, the president pledged another $200 million in military assistance for Ukraine 
And so there's been a lot of uh, steps that the president has taken. And the question is what he does next in addition. John, I think Charlotte puts it very well. This is about how the administration can participate in a war without participating in a war. But it's a very different kind of war to that which American government officials thought they'd be engaged in at this point. I mean, most of the intelligence assessments were correct in predicting the invasion, but then thought that quite quickly, Russia, frankly, would overwhelm Ukraine's forces in many places. And we'd be in an insurgency phase where the West was supplying weapons to you know, Ukrainian partisans. It would be more like you know, perhaps the aid that was given to the Mujahideen in the 1980s fighting off the Soviet Union. In fact, that isn't what's happened. Ukraine's armed forces have performed spectacularly well, you know, pushed Russian forces back in some places. And so America is in the position of trying to work out how to resupply somebody else's army in territory where A, it's quite hard to get them the equipment, and B, where the equipment they're using is not American equipment. You know, they largely have to try and get equipment that the Ukrainian armed forces are familiar with, which tends to be Soviet-made equipment. How do you think that effort is going? Because, I mean, in Anton's formulation, America, to some extent, has done the easy things. The really hard things come when Ukraine's army starts to run out of ammunition or, or even looks like it might collapse. At that point, things get really hard for the U.S. That's right. I think what the United States thought it would be doing, as you say, is 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 arming an insurgency and sort of waiting for external events to influence what happens in this war. What they're faced with now, thanks to Ukraine's spectacular bravery and competence and Russia's cruelty and incompetence, is the prospect that they may actually be able to win this, or at least they can think about what it might take to win this war. And so in that sense, I think it's a real shame that the United States has not facilitated the transfer of those MiG fighter jets from Poland. I think if they're anxious about transferring the jets themselves, they could send them as spare parts because that's what Ukraine's Air Force will need as their current stable of planes takes fire or just just undergoes regular wear and tear. But it's a different strategic and tactical question than I think they had prepared to answer, and they're making it up on the fly. I think that's such a good point. And you heard that in some of the commentary from Dmitry Kuleva, who's Ukraine's foreign minister. We had a great interview with him in The Economist, which people should look up. But when he was talking about what more America could do or what more the West could do, he made the complaint that the West is drawing an artificial line, essentially, between defensive support, anti-tank, anti-aircraft missiles, and the types of, of weapons that could be judged by Russia to be offensive, including planes, armored vehicles, tanks. And so that's really right at this point that I think John highlighted, which is America didn't expect itself to be in this position with Ukraine now trying very hard to to fend off Russian attacks, what other support could go further to drive the Russians back? And I think that's really a delicate position for the Biden administration because they want to be sure not to be seen as provocative. They don't want to be seen, don't want to give fuel to Vladimir Putin's completely uh, vacuous argument that Russia is defending itself. So I think that that's something that the administration's wrestling with. John, so far, we've mainly talked about America's role in coordinating the military response here. But there's also a humanitarian crisis underway in Ukraine. Huge flows of refugees, 
many civilians sheltering uh, in makeshift bomb shelters as Russia's artillery pounds away at their cities. What role does the US government, the administration, have to play there? So far, the response has been fairly underwhelming. There have been about 3.5 million people who have fled Ukraine so far, most of them to neighboring countries. Between March 1st and March 16th, the United States, however, took in a grand total of seven. That's not 7,000 or 700,000, that's seven Ukrainian refugees. Now, part of that is because the process of becoming a refugee, of being approved for refugee resettlement in the United States is extremely difficult and abstruse. It can take up to five years. But as we're recording, the Biden administration is going to announce or plans to announce that it will welcome up to 100,000 refugees here, which is quite welcome. Um, It's not much, but it's welcome. The Biden administration argues that most Ukrainians would prefer to stay in Europe where they're closer to their families, where they can move around much more easily, where they can return home, uh, God willing, once this is over and Ukraine is, is free and safe again. I think there's some plausibility to that. And John, regular listeners to the podcast will know that there are some echoes here with your own family story. There are. My mother's father's family came from a village called Bircha, which is now in Poland, uh, but it was sort of in the Ukrainian sphere of influence. My father's mother's family was originally from Gomel in Belarus, but they came here from Odessa, where they'd been living for a while. And we think his father is from, their family is from a shtetl near Odessa. And they all came, all my great-grandparents came as, as refugees here. And of course, we know the stories of Jews who died because they were turned away in the 1940s. So I just feel it's an imperative to do everything we can to welcome as many people as we can. Well, I imagine that all our listeners are nodding in agreement with that. We'll go back to a time when President Obama made a foreign policy U-turn in a moment. But first, if you love Checks and Balance and you don't already subscribe to The Economist, then you really should. You'll be able to read, listen and watch everything we make, including Anton's piece on the new Cold War, which is in the paper this week. Charlotte, what did you think was particularly good in, in our coverage that you've read so far? I really enjoyed James Astle's Lexington column, which is about Biden's energy policy. I think it's absolutely worth a read. John, how about you? We have a few correspondents in Ukraine who've just been doing extraordinary, brave work in straightened circumstances and churning out a tremendous amount of it. I have liked uh, the dispatches that Oliver Carroll has given us from Zaporizhia about the destruction of Mariupol. We had a very moving interview with him on the intelligence this week. He was in Zaporizhia, where a lot of refugees from Mariupol have gone. I've also been enjoying Andrei Kirkhoff's work in in 1843. He is, of course, Ukraine's most famous living novelist, and he's had a very wry, welcome sensibility that's that's just been a pleasure to read. Yeah, I agree. His pieces are excellent. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Conflict between the Syrian government and opposition rebels had already been raging for two years when, on August 21, 2013, horrifying footage from a Damascus suburb emerged. These clips that have come out following this attack are especially difficult uh, to watch. You see clinics, the floors of clinics filled with bodies, amongst them many children, some of them listless, some of them gasping for air. President Bashar al-Assad had fired toxic sarin gas onto his own people. 1,400 men, women and children died. So far, the U.S. had hung back 
providing humanitarian support and advising opposition groups, but not intervening militarily. A year earlier, President Obama had been adamant that there was one thing which would change that. We have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground, that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. That would change my equation. His supposedly impromptu remarks had taken many of his own advisers by surprise. But the red line had been drawn, and now it had been crossed. An airstrike on regime military targets was planned for August 31st. European allies were courted to support it, and administration mouthpieces were sent into the field to make the case for action. Among them, then-Vice President Joe Biden. The president believes, and I believe, that those who use chemical weapons against defenseless men, women and children should and must be held accountable. And the day before the planned strike, Secretary of State John Kerry sounded resolute. As previous storms in history have gathered, when unspeakable crimes were within our power to stop them, we have been warned against the temptations of looking the other way. History is full of leaders who have warned against inaction, indifference, and especially against silence when it mattered most. But August the 31st dawned, and rather than send planes into the skies over Syria, Obama stepped out under a sunny DC sky to speak in the White House Rose Garden, Joe Biden by his side. I've long believed that our power is rooted not just in our military might, but in our example as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that's why I've made a second decision. I will seek authorization for the use of force from the American people's representatives in Congress. The red line, it turned out, had conditions. Obama had grown increasingly uneasy about the strike. He'd lost backing from the UK after its parliament voted against action and never got it from the leader he called his closest ally, Angela Merkel. His distrust of DC foreign policy groupthink and hangover from the protracted conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan added to his wariness. The backing of Congress would add the legitimacy Obama was convinced he needed. The bill never made it to the floor. The strike was off. For some, the fact that Obama set out a red line and didn't follow through was the biggest foreign policy mistake of his presidency. This accusation was probably why, in 2014, Obama was on the defensive. I would note that uh, those who uh, criticize our foreign policy with respect to Syria, they themselves say, no, 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 we don't mean sending in troops. Well, what do you mean? Well, you should be uh, assisting the opposition. Well, we're assisting the opposition. What else do you mean? Well, perhaps you should have taken a strike in Syria to get chemical weapons out of Syria. Well, it turns out we're getting chemical weapons out of Syria without having initiated a strike. So what else are you talking about? And at that point, it kind of trails off. He thought he'd turned the red line farce into a diplomatic victory when, the month after the abandoned strike, he'd made a deal with the Russians for Syria to give up its chemical weapons. But the damage had been done. America's credibility as a world power had been weakened. And not all the chemical weapons were removed. The Syrian government later used them again on its own people. 
President Obama was criticized because he set out a red line and then erased it. He didn't use the phrase, but President Biden drew his own red line when he said he wouldn't intervene militarily in Ukraine. A month into the conflict, his vow that NATO would respond if Russia used chemical weapons suggests he's willing to erase his red line. This time, though, he's likely to be praised for doing so. John, I think President Biden and his administration's response to Russia's invasion has been pretty impressive so far. But you do always get the sense with President Biden, because he's been involved in American foreign policy decisions for so long, that he's always trying to avoid some previous mistake that was made, you know, maybe including by him. And I was struck that when the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, was asked about the use of chemical weapons and whether that was a red line, and she said no, that seemed very much a response not to what was happening in Ukraine now, but rather to what happened in Syria in 2013. You know, her not wanting the president to get in a position where an adversary crossed a red line and the US did nothing about it. I agree that the administration's response has so far been generally good. I think he's been especially good at marshalling support from allies. I do think that he's been a bit too perhaps transparent about what he will and won't do about his red lines. My concern is that when he and other allies say that any Russian attack on NATO territory will prompt a severe response, what Russia hears is, go ahead and seize Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, seize all the non-NATO territory you like. So I do wish he was a bit bolder, a bit tougher. I think those fighter jets should find their way to Ukraine somehow. And he also has a natural sort of cautiousness, I think, especially regarding war. Remember, he was elected to the Senate initially in 1972 as an opponent of the Vietnam War. And I think some of that reflexive caution is still there. Yes, I think that's a very good point. People sometimes forget that about Joe Biden, perhaps because of his enthusiasm for the war in Afghanistan and for the second Gulf War. So, Charlotte, what do you think America ought to do if Ukraine's forces start collapsing or if Russia were to use chemical weapons or to use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine? You know, what do you think ought to happen then? Thankfully, I don't have Jake Sullivan's job, the job of the national security advisor. But I think it's worth looking to what Dmitry Kuleba, the Ukraine foreign minister, said which is that there are some carve-outs to sanctions that are, were supposed to freeze reserves held by Russia's central bank abroad. So you could tighten those. I'm going to list some things that are short of, of a really aggressive response. You could provide some of those weapons that America has been loath to give to date for fear of looking offensive. So you could see some of that activity. I would note that if you look to what Biden's peers are saying and doing in Europe, NATO isn't the only game in town. You see European countries having their own conversations. The Joint Expeditionary Force is a coalition of 10 Northern European countries led by Britain, which was created in part to insulate America from European politics. Britain also wanted to reestablish itself in a position of strength and create allies post-Brexit. Um, but you have that group. You have the French-led European Intervention Initiative. So there are these other conversations happening that are supposedly more uh, quick-moving than a full NATO response. I very much doubt that there's going to be some aggressive action taken without American involvement. Nevertheless, I think that we should keep an eye on how American allies 
are responding. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to find out what American voters think about the conflict in Ukraine. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sarah Longwell is the publisher of the conservative news website, The Bulwark, and she's a friend of Checks and Balance. She's been on the podcast before. She also has her own excellent podcast, The Focus Group, in which she talks to voters. She recently did an episode in which she listened to what Republicans think about the conflict in Ukraine. I think what was most surprising is I had been wondering with all of the anti-Ukraine sentiment coming from people like Tucker Carlson or Madison Cawthorn or Marjorie Taylor Greene, Candace Owens, you know, there's this sort of wing of the, whether it's the Republican Party or the conservative kind of MAGA podcaster news media that's that's anti-Ukraine and pro-Putin pretty nakedly. And Trump, you know, Trump himself comes out and says Putin is very smart. And so I guess what I was heartened by is to hear how pro-Ukrainian these MAGA voters were. They're inspired by what they're seeing from the Ukrainian people, and they were very vocal about that. And the other thing that surprised me was, you know, I've done a lot of focus groups listening to people talk about how difficult the current economic environment is in terms of inflation, in terms of gas prices in particular. Um, And in this focus group, when you talked about gas prices in the context of sanctions and punishing Russia and Putin and, and in an effort to help Ukraine, suddenly people were much more willing to accept higher gas prices if it meant it was going to help Ukraine and hurt Putin. That's really interesting. So to some extent, it seems like the president has some permission there to ask voters to make a sacrifice on behalf of freedom, to use slightly Ronald Reagan-y rhetoric. I want to ask you about that wing of the GOP, or at least the kind of GOP conservative entertainment complex that is pro-Putin and hostile to Ukraine, because I don't think that really has any equivalent in Europe, at least in mainstream politics. So what is going on there? And how did those people get there. I mean, this is all Trump's influence. So when when Trump came onto the scene, a big part of what he would talk about is being anti-NATO. It was it's part of the <laughs> to the extent that it has any definition at all. It is part of the America first agenda. Is America alone? It is uh, weirdly critical of American foreign policy. You know, Donald Trump when he was asked about Vladimir Putin being a killer and why his rhetoric was so favorable to him, you know, he would say. Things like what we're so innocent, you know, we've got a lot of killers too. And so there's this, this strain that kind of grew up around that, that is very isolationist, that has built part of its rhetoric around blaming America for, you know, and some of it has to do with the Iraq war and adventurism. And and there's been kind of the shorthand of, well, we don't like neocons anymore. The neocons were a bad part of the old establishment Republican that we should reject. And so that is sort of like 
perversely melded into this strange pro-Putin, anti-Ukrainian rhetoric that you're hearing from some corners of the conservative movement. I ran into somebody this week who said to me, surely the fact that Donald Trump has said such positive things about Vladimir Putin in the past, surely that hurts him politically um, in the future. And I said that I thought not, because essentially, if you're a hyper-partisan, the way you think is you start with your conclusion and you, you reason backwards. So you come up with some position that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, like, well, Putin would never have invaded if Trump were president because he's strong and Biden's weak. Did, did you find that the Republicans you spoke to in the focus group were doing that kind of sort of political jujitsu to justify their position? Or did you see that because of the position Donald Trump took on Putin, there's some scepticism there, people trying to kind of distance themselves from some of the remarks he's made in the past and some of his posture towards Vladimir Putin. No, I, I agree with your uh, initial analysis, where what you heard in the focus groups was them being extremely anti-Putin themselves, but totally letting Donald Trump off the hook for calling him smart and having sort of this positive rhetoric. And what they do, and this is a very sort of typical, I would say, uh, frame that you hear from Trump voters is that they blame the media for how the media interpreted it. You know, they would say, well, yeah, Trump's right. Putin is smart. Doesn't mean he's good. Doesn't mean he's a good person, but he's he's strategic. Uh, and so they, they're happy to sort of explain away Trump. However, I will say uh, the one thing that has been interesting to me has been that Trump recently has backtracked a bit, right? He's, he's saying things like, well, this isn't the Putin I know. He's changed, right? He's changed. And this is interesting because normally Donald Trump can kind of yank the party in his direction, a lot of these voters, and that's not working right now. Like voters are reacting to the truth that they are seeing on their televisions about the bravery of the Ukrainian people. They understand that Putin is the aggressor. And so while they don't blame Trump exactly, Trump is having to go meet his voters this time because there's no doubt that the American public is much more pro-Zelensky uh, and anti-Putin uh, than Trump himself is. That's interesting, because as you know, ever since 2015, when Donald Trump came into American politics in a serious way, there's been this long debate about where the limits of his power to shape Republican thinking are and to shape the thinking of Republican voters. And wherever analysts have thought, well, maybe, you know, this this is the question on which, you know, he has to meet them. Very often that's been proved wrong, right? There were some limits around vaccines, I think, that we saw. But this looks like an area where there are some, some limits on his power to entirely reshape the way voters think about things, or at least Republican partisans think about things. Yeah, I think that's right. One of Trump's weird reptilian superpowers is being able to say all the things to all the people, right? Where he says multiple things and then he can say that he was right about all of it, even if they're in exact contrast. So take, for example, this is what the Republican Party is doing right now, where you've got a wing of the party that is actively pro-Putin or actively anti-Ukraine or even anti-anti-Putin. And then you've got another wing of the party that's saying, you know, Biden's too weak on Putin and Biden's not doing enough. And they managed to somehow make those polar opposites, contrasting points redound to the same idea, which is that Biden is doing a bad job. Biden is bad. Biden is wrong. And so that's really what 
then sort of Republican voters fall back on. And in this focus group, it was very clear. And, and you hear this in Trump's rhetoric, too, right, where Trump is saying, well, if I were president, it would be different. I would be being much tougher, much stronger. And that's the way that that these voters can say, see, if, it, if Trump was there, he'd be being much tougher. And that's how these actually objectively contrasting truths are able to exist in the same space in Republican politics. Charlotte, it's pretty notable that for all his leadership when it comes to the Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Joe Biden hasn't seen any bump in the polls in his approval ratings. Looking at the polling numbers, as far as you can tell, what do American voters want from him now? I was struck that as a whole, the share of Americans, according to Pew polling, the share of Americans who think America's not doing enough outnumbers the share who think it's about right by 42% to 32%. It's worth keeping in mind that only 7% think America is doing too much. Republicans are more likely to think that Americans should do more. But when you drill down and try to understand what that might mean, neither Republicans nor Democrats really want military action if it risks a nuclear conflict with Russia, which it may well. So it's 35% of Democrats think that military action would be necessary and and 36% of Republicans. So I think you see that inconsistency there where a big chunk of Americans want something more to happen, but they're not quite sure what that means and they're wary of doing too much. I was struck in the statements that Republicans have been making publicly wanting uh, America to be more forceful, for instance, with a no-fly zone. And I think one thing that's really been struck working for a British publication as an American is just how distant the war still feels, I think, to many Americans. This is something that is happening far away, and it's just felt on a much more visceral level by our colleagues in Europe and all of the people that we have covering this war on the other side of the Atlantic. I think that for Republicans in Congress who are talking about a no-fly zone, there are statements that are politically advantageous in America that sound astonishingly dangerous in Europe. John, it feels like the establishment wing of the Republican Party, what we used to call the establishment wing of the Republican Party, has reverted to a sort of prior hawkish position on this in a way which is what you'd expect, right? They're pushing Joe Biden to go further and do more. But there's also this weird bit of the Republican Party, the America first bit, that has got itself in this strange position, which Sarah Longwell described to us, of being sort of objectively sort of pro-Putin and hostile to Ukraine. Can you try and explain what's going on there? Because it does seem mad. I think there's a sizable share of the American right that wants a prevailing culture that says, you know, on Sundays, you go to church, even if they themselves don't go to church. And marriage is between a man and a woman even if the president they liked was thrice married and adulterous, and that slavery was a brief aberration from American ideals, and now it's all over and we don't have to talk to it again. And I think this wing of the right really prizes sort of unreflexive performative machismo, and that's what Vladimir Putin embodies to them, right? That he is a tough talker, he's closely associated with the Orthodox Church, Ukraine's president is a Jewish comedian, as Madison Cawthorn says, Ukraine is pushing woke ideologies, so I think it's sort of a cultural synergy between that faction of the right and what they believe Vladimir Putin represents. Now, 
I very much hope that this wing of the right is increasingly marginalized, but it still is quite vocal, and they still have commentators like Tucker Carlson and elected officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn. I think the risk for the establishment wing of the party is more or less the same as it was in 2016, which is why they, if they didn't embrace Trump, they just didn't reject him, which is that it's going to be really hard to win national elections without that faction of the right on your side. Unfettered machismo is how I think of you two. (laughs) (laughs) Rightly so. John, isn't it also the case that if you start from the position that anything that really annoys mainstream Republicans and annoys liberals is good, this is the sort of position you end up in? Yes, absolutely. If you start from the position, which I think Tucker Carlson and probably Cawthorn and Green do, that where you design your career around owning the libs, that leads you into some positions that are on the merits, just utterly crackers and abhorrent. We should also keep in mind that the midterms are just around the corner and the presidential election is going to start ramping up. And so I think few people expected that the prospect of a dramatically escalating war would be what people would be talking about in the run up to the midterms. I think that the Biden administration is going to be consumed by this for some time to come. And it will be interesting to see how Democrats and Republicans continue to pivot as the war drags on. And so I know that on this show and in our pages of The Economist, we'll be continuing to look at America's role here. And I think that the Biden administration has its work cut out. It's an extremely, extremely delicate position in any circumstance, um, and particularly one in which you have an election coming up. Yeah, I agree with that. It's also striking that if you think of the elections of Donald Trump in 2016 and Joe Biden in 2020, they were both elected to do lots of different things. But one common thing, I think, was to end the 9-11 wars, right? That was one of Donald Trump's few consistent foreign policy aims. It's something that Joe Biden was really guided by. And I think the feeling in the country was that it'd be great if the world could just leave America alone for a little bit. Unfortunately, if you're the superpower, history doesn't leave you alone. And so over the next few months, the Biden administration, other people in Congress are going to be faced, I think, with some really, really hard decisions about the extent of America's willingness to support President Zelensky's government and to prevent a large number of civilians from being killed in Ukraine. We don't know what decisions they'll make there, but we'll continue to report on them and analyze. And as you both have said, we have colleagues doing fantastic work in Ukraine and around the world at the moment. Okay, before I let you guys go, I have a quiz for you. The Economist first mentioned Barack Obama in a March 2004 article about the Illinois Senate race. In Chicago, a city with deep Irish roots, we wondered if he might do better as Obama. Question. When did Illinois last vote for a Republican candidate in a presidential election? Was it uh, Ronald Reagan in 1984? That sounds reasonable. I'll say George H.W. Bush just for the sake of offering something different. Just for the sake of variety, which is correct, Charlotte. It was Bush Sr. in 1988. He won 50.7% of the popular vote in that year. Question two. Who, from 1927 onwards, spent his summers working as a lifeguard at Lowell Park in Illinois? Ronald Reagan. Is the correct answer. Ronald Reagan grew up in the state. Legend has it that he saved 77 people from the Rock River, which ran through the park. I wonder how many presidents were lifeguards. It seems like the right personality fit. That's absolutely right. You like being the center of attention, arbitrarily using power while feeling like you're saving people. (laughs) 
Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. It's great to talk to both of you as ever. Thanks, John. It's good to be back. Thank you. This week's Economist Asks podcast features an interview with former American ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, which is very informative both about American foreign policy and about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. So do go and listen to that. Thank you, too, to our producer, Harriet Noble, and our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Hold up. 